0: Hi everybody, I'm Gloria Moraga. This is Political Woman. I'm a political woman and I vote. This past Monday was the first Monday in October. What that means is it's the beginning of the Supreme Court session. This session runs from now until next summer. So the justices began hearing cases on Monday and they will hear cases throughout the rest of this year, usually two days a week. It used to be three days a week, but I'm looking at the schedule and there are a lot of just two-day weeks for them. They hear cases through the fall and through the winter, so beginning the beginning of next year. And then they begin handing down their decisions on these cases in the summer. And when I used to cover the court, producers from various television stations would say to me, well, what did the court decide today? And it's like, they don't decide on the day they hear the case. They decide nine months later. It's like a baby. Takes nine months. So we'll start hearing decisions on these cases beginning July 1st, and that'll be July 2023. Right now, some people are calling this Supreme Court the Nightmare on First Street. I thought that was very clever. I was listening to a podcast. Someone said it on a podcast, and they're calling it that because the beautiful Supreme Court building is located on First Street, southeast in Washington, D.C., It's located right across the street from the US Capitol. In fact, I used to do live shots at what we called the Senate Swamp site, and it's right outside the Senate steps. And um, from that site, you can, if you position the camera a certain way, you can actually see the Supreme Court behind the reporter or behind me. So I've done live shots from that Senate site on the Supreme Court, with Supreme Court behind me. So Monday, first Monday in October, Tuesday, <laughs> first Tuesday in October, we heard arguments in one of the cases civil rights leaders are most concerned about. The case is Merrill versus Mulligan, and it involves a redistricting plan in Alabama. Now, When I was a young reporter, when I was a reporter, political reporter, I would pitch redistricting stories (laughs) at my story conference in the morning. You'd have the the morning editorial meeting, and you, you pitch your stories as a reporter. And the assignment editors and everybody always said, Gloria, nobody wants to hear or see a story on TV about redistricting. But redistricting is very important. There's something called gerrymandering. And um, it has to do with state legislatures drawing the districts in a state kind of weird and funny, oddly, so that they can favor one candidate or another. So they could determine... Where the most Republican voters live, and redraw the district so that that district becomes the district that only a Republican can win in. And this redistricting responsibility is the responsibility of legislatures, state legislatures. So, right now, there are a lot of state legislatures that are controlled by Republicans. And these Republicans, after the 2020 census, because there was a count, and so districts, you can change districts because the census tells us how many people there are in in a district or in in a state. These Republicans redrew the districts to favor Republicans. That's why at the beginning of this year, 2022, there's a firm belief among pollsters and pundits and anybody who knows anything about politics that there was no way Democrats would keep control of the U.S. House of Representatives because the districts had been drawn so that only Republicans could win in some of these districts. Well, what happened was Supreme Court. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, which basically, and I've said this before, made women in this country second-class citizens. We no longer have right to privacy when we make our medical decisions. Now, everybody, everybody's, you know, buttoning into what happens to us medically. And it's just appalling to me. What, we're, what the heck? What the heck is going on? It's just barbaric. And there are a lot of reasons this Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. The main reason is because the justices lied when they were in their confirmation hearings. They lied and they said that Roe versus Wade was law and they weren't going to overturn it. Liars. And another thing that happened was Donald Trump got the support of Christian evangelicals because he promised to appoint judges, conservative judges, that would overturn rights for women. So basically what the Christian evangelists, the right-wing Christian groups did, was they got in bed with a misogynist monster, Donald Trump. He's said and done so many horrible things about women, the way he's treated women, how he's talked about women, just right out in the open. Um, I'm not going to go into it, but look it up. It's, it's bad. He is a sexist pig. And he's a monster. And they d- didn't care because he was going to appoint judges that would support what they want, which is they want to outlaw abortion, but really what, what they want is control over women. Because when women get pregnant and have babies at cat work, men are more in control at the workplace. Yes, this, this is happening. This is happening now. Women took the brunt of COVID. They still haven't gotten back on their feet. Uh, Women overall in the United States because of COVID. So, yeah. So these people sold their souls. They're lost to support Donald Trump. And he got them what they wanted. But did they see what a monster of a man he is and how he's destroying our country? No, probably not. Probably not. But when that happened, when the Supreme Court did that, it galvanized a lot of people who really don't care about politics or voting, et cetera, et cetera. I hope it lasts because we are in trouble in the United States. That's why I'm doing these podcasts instead of talking about communications, but I can talk about communications as well and tell you my stories. And that's what I'm trying to do. So, yeah, they're calling the Supreme Court the nightmare on First Street. And I lived, when I lived in Washington, I lived on Fifth Street Southeast. And on the first Monday in October, it's usually beautiful there then, I would walk to the Supreme Court, and as a reporter, you go in the side door, and um, you go into your little reporter area, the little wooden seats, little chairs that are really really uncomfortable, and you can't really see the justices, but you can hear them. You have a really good sound system, and you can hear really well. And then there's a guy who stands there by the by the door, by the curtain, and he w- would turn and tell us who was talking. So he'd turn and he'd say, you know, Justice Marshall, you know, and it was just so beautiful and wonderful to cover. I loved it. It's a beautiful building inside. So back to Merrill versus Mulligan redistricting in Alabama. Alabama is not the only state that's doing this. In fact, the number is quite high of states that are attacking and dismantling the Voting Rights Act. Now, the Voting Rights Act, at least this particular Voting Rights Act we're talking about, was signed by Lyndon Johnson. And it was after all of the riots that were on television during the sixties of people being water cannoned and you know uh, states in the south in the deep south making black voters take these like ridiculous tests before they could vote. You know it was all of the this, this civil rights violations happening in the South and in other states as well and What the right-wing Supreme Court, the nightmare, has been doing is it's been slowly dismantling the Voting Rights Act. And states have been dismantling the Voting Rights Acts. So they want to make it more difficult for minorities, people of color, to vote. Why? Because when we turn out, and it's not just African Americans... Just let me make that clear. It's also Mexican Americans. So you know, when they talk about, oh, these there's a big voting block now of of Latinos in the country voting Republican, wake up, people. Wake up. It's time that you listened and heard some of these statistics and some of the stuff that's going on. You are going to be one of the first groups of people that are going to be disenfranchised. If we don't keep control of the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate, just get ready to not have a free election next time out when you're busy voting the way your union tells you to vote. No, vote the way you want to vote. When Democrats and moderates turn out to vote, we win. And they just don't want that. And when I say they, yeah, I mean Republicans, racists, the white majority that's becoming minority and they're panicked about that and they're in a panic because barack obama was our president for eight years and they don't want this to happen they don't want a woman to be president they don't want people of color to be president so they're going to change the rules and that's what we're in the process of right now we're in the process of them changing The rules. Donald Trump was in there for four years. He appointed many judges, and they're counting on this to slowly destroy and take away our rights to bring us to our knees. And it's not, I'm not being paranoid. This is happening. So they're changing the way elections take place, they're making threats. They're on the dark web or on their social media sites threatening, let's gear up, let's get our guns ready, just like what Trump wanted. Trump lost. He's a big loser, okay? He's been a loser all his life. He was given millions when he was a kid, when he became, turned 21, from his dad. And he's blown it all. I mean, look at the facts. He's in trouble. He's stealing money from voters and using it for his own gain. So, yeah, they want to change how elections are run in the United States so they can win because they've done it for years. They did it for years in the Deep South, and they're trying to take us back. So this whole case out of Alabama is a redistricting vote dilution you dilute the vote issue, you redistrict, and uh, Alabama is one-third African-American, one-third Black voters, but yet now they've only got, there's only one district that would favor a Black candidate or a a, a Democratic candidate. That's how they gerrymandered the case, and they argued this case before the Supreme Court and the Damn fact is, there are only three non conservative justices on the court. And they are three women. And I'm so love them so. They are Justices Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and the newest Justice, Katanji Brown Jackson. Man, they reamed this lawyer for, from Alabama on Tuesday. I have the audio. I have posted it on my website. I was going to play some of it here um, so you could hear it. Maybe I'll put a little bit at the end of the podcast. But wow, they were great. I, I felt so good listening to them. For the, for the first time in a long time, I felt good listening to them. But then it hit me afterwards. It might not matter. Because you've got these three people that Trump put on, the Trump and that senator, I'm not going to say his name, who blocked Obama for putting a justice on the court. He needs to go to jail. And um, yeah, it might not matter because these three women... These brilliant women are outnumbered. They're outnumbered. You know, we've got fascists on the Supreme Court, and a guy that's so not qualified to be on the court, and that's Justice Thomas. I I covered him when I was in Washington. He's not qualified. He's totally unqualified, and he's got this wife who's a Trump person who is in cahoots with all the Trump people, and he won't recuse himself from cases. And um, he needs to go. He needs to be impeached. They need to do something about it. So, yeah, the Voting Rights Act is being dismantled by the right wing, and it's going to make it more difficult for people of color to vote. They're doing it in every state. In every Republican-controlled state in the United States, but now there's this case before the Supreme Court, and there's another one that's coming up that would, will also, also attacks the Voting Rights Act. So please go to my website, GloriaMoraga.com, and you can listen to the entire uh, case of Beryl versus Mulligan. And they even have, I've included a link the transcript. So this is how I learned how to love Shakespeare. I know not everybody likes Shakespeare, not everybody can follow along with Shakespeare's plays, but I learned how to understand and love Shakespeare by listening to the recording of the play and following along with with the words. And I spent many hours at the Fresno Library (laughs) listening to records, listening to Shakespeare, Shakespeare art records and reading along. And I love it. It's one of the things that's enriched my life so much. First Monday in October, my friends, that's my story. That's my podcast. I had another podcast that I recorded last night on my little tape recorder and I'm going to start doing this um, so I can post every day. I'm trying to figure out what to call it, but something like um, my political woman rantings in my bed. (laughs) It's something uh, I'll let you know. But I've got one that I recorded and then my little tape recorder didn't work, and I'm, uh, the tape recorder's really good. Um, I've recorded some podcasts on it, but I was going to use my phone, but my phone, I have a new phone, and it hardly has any memory, and I hate it so much. I'm Gloria Moraga. We are less than six weeks away from our November election, and I am going to be doing some podcasts on our propositions in California. I hope that you listen to them, because... It's just more of understanding the election process. And I think we all need civic lessons and it can't hurt. (laughs) I hope you'll enjoy them. I'm Gloria Moraga. I'm a political woman. I vote. Please subscribe. Please share. Please find me on iTunes, and like me, and write a review, and please
1: be safe. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 21-1086, Merrill versus Milligan, and the consolidated case. Mr. Lucor? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Alabama conducted its 2021 redistricting in a lawful, race-neutral manner. The state largely retained its existing districts and made changes needed to equalize population. But that wasn't good enough for the plaintiffs. They argued that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act requires Alabama to replace its map with a racially gerrymandered plan maximizing the number of majority-minority districts. But Section 2 requires an electoral process equally open to all, not one that guarantees maximum political success for some over others. Section 2 does not and cannot obligate Alabama to abandon district lines enveloping the undisputed, long-standing community of interest in the Gulf to be replaced by district lines dividing black and white with such racial precision that Alabama could never have constitutionally drawn those lines in the first place. Do you agree that the benchmark you propose has never been recognized by this Court
2: as the benchmark that's appropriate in these kinds of cases?
1: I, I don't think so, Justice Kagan. First, I mean, going back to Jingles, uh, it — I think the benchmark there, even for multi-member districts, was neutrally drawn single-member districts, not racially gerrymandered single-member districts. And when you continue… Of
2: course, you're requiring that there be that kind of benchmark. The question is not whether it's permissible. You are requiring that there be a race-neutral benchmark. And I'm asking whether that requirement has ever been stated in our
1: precedence. I think that's what Bush v. Vera, what Abrams, and what LULAC were all pushing towards when they said you must account for traditional districting principles. I don't know why you would even account for them, except that if a plaintiff's failure to account for them in their map, um, if, if plaintiffs fail to account for them in their map, then their map can't really shed any light I on whether there's a problem. I guess I ask
2: because what strikes me about this case is that under our precedent, it's kind of a slam dunk. If you just take our existing precedent the way it is, and the three judges below all found this, the three judges below said — this is an easy case. It's not one of the hard ones. It's not one of the boundary line cases. It was clear that the plaintiff satisfied the Jingles' preconditions. Um, uh, it's in, – and in, in past that, you know, you're looking at a state where there are 27 percent of the population is African-American, but only one of seven districts, where there is incredible racially polarized voting – where there is a long history of racial discrimination in the state. Put all that together, and it seems clear that under our existing precedents, the inquiry is complete in just the way that, this, that, the, that the court below found. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that you're coming here, and it's totally your right to do it, but really saying change the way we look at Section 2 and its application.
1: Uh, Absolutely not, Your Honor. And respectfully, I I thought this was the — this is such an edge case. This is a case where the plaintiffs have come forward with an expert who said it's hard to draw a second-majority minority district by accident. It's a case where the name plaintiff, Evan Milgan himself, showed that it's hard to do it on purpose. He runs an Alabama-focused redistricting nonprofit. He had a team of trained map drawers try to draw a second-majority black district in Alabama, and they couldn't do it. That's at page 511 of the joint appendix.
3: So I'm sorry, can I just uh, help? I, I don't understand. Are you saying that um, the jingles preconditions, as we ordinarily understand them, were not
1: satisfied in this case? Y- yes, Your Honor. I mean, Lulek says. So? How so? Lulek says quite clearly account for traditional districting principles such as maintaining communities of interest and traditional boundaries. There's an undisputed traditional uh, – rather, an undisputed community of interest in the Gulf. The district court found that the Gulf community is a community of interest, and it's not maintained. Uh, So I think it's open and shut. No, I'm sorry. So
3: you're saying step one was not satisfied in this case because the ordinary redistricting principles — I thought this was about a race-blind algorithm, so now I'm confused. So what what is the problem? And let me just — let me tell you why I think that matters, um, because much like what Justice Kagan was suggesting, we have to figure out whether you are claiming that we need to change jingles in some fundamental way or whether you're just saying that these plaintiffs didn't satisfy jingles in the way that we normally understand it. I thought you were saying — Jingles step one needs to be retooled to require some showing of a comparison with a race-neutral or, excuse me, a race-blind algorithm. And so then my question was, okay, well, you would bear the burden, I think, of showing that there's a problem with the way that we're doing it now, that the way that Jingles is working, and that a race-blind algorithm actually produces a better result insofar as it's uh, better implementing what Congress intended, or it is required by the Constitution. All of those are pretty heavy burdens, I think, um, in this situation. So are you asking us to reconsider what is happening with Jingles to require that challengers compare their original map at Step 1 with a race-blind algorithm?
1: The, the algorithms are not essential. They're, they're very helpful and illuminating in this case because the Milligan plaintiffs brought them themselves. What do they illuminate? They show that this is what you would expect a race-neutral map drawer to produce. Why and does that
3: matter? I thought Congress's statute said we don't care about intent. So the race-neutral nature of this goes to whether or not Alabama intended the result. And I take your point that no, you didn't. So what difference does it make what a race-neutral algorithm would do? It matters.